0: Hello, I'm Lawrence Woodruff, and my co-host enjoys creative dialogue with teachers around the world. And I'm Michael Ralph, and my co-host
1: enjoys his creative dialogue with teachers around the building. Professional growth involves ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research while drinking beer.
0: Today, we are drinking Plaid Habit, a Canadian whiskey barrel-aged imperial brown ale from the Boulevard Brewing Company.
1: Wow. That smell hits me hard. The nose, I suppose, is the, the technical term for that. Which is saying something, because I've been sick, and so the fact that I
0: can smell it at all is noteworthy. Uh, the smell is really strong, and I'm still enjoying that, and I don't want that my... I don't want to be disappointed, this is so so anticipatory.
1: Welcome back, Mr. Woodruff. We're getting back into our top form this month by discussing Governing the Innovation Commons. Uh, That was made available to us by Dr. Potts, the author who wrote about how we promote innovation, and we're going to talk about how we can apply those ideas to promote educational creativity. For our peer review, Yuki Torada will join us to talk about his recent article that is a roundup of 2018 research. And we're gonna take a look
0: at how his notes compare with our notes. So let's get started. Governing the Innovation Commons, that was sent to us by James Potts. Thank you for that. This is a little bit of a departure from what we normally read. It's an economics paper. Now there are implications for this paper to education. As
1: you said, it's got some applicability for education because this general theoretical construct then applies to all sorts
0: of markets, education being one. The general thesis of the paper was that innovation does not start with entrepreneurship. There's actually something before that that is often overlooked in economic analyses. He described to great length What comes before entrepreneurship to create new value and create new solutions?
1: As I was reading this paper it's really focused on the economic theory and I was trying to connect it back to education curriculum development. So where do we get our materials that we use in the classroom? So does it matter whether I turn to the people I follow on Pinterest or Instagram or does it matter whether I use the textbook publishers materials or if I want to try to share something should I give it to my professional organization? Should I start a blog? Uh, So as I was applying this paper's ideas I was trying to think about how do we support the teachers who are being creative and trying to share their materials for other teachers
0: to benefit. An entrepreneur will take an insight or a good idea and find a way to try to develop it into value in a market. But where do those good ideas come from? Where does that value initially spring forth? The origin, as they use in the paper, the origin of that value happens before then in the innovation commons. My distillation of what that means Dr. Potts, correct me if I'm wrong, is that there are enthusiast participants in some culture that are eager to solve some kind of problem and they are so invested in solving the problem that they're willing to share information that they have with others in order to get more information to increase their ability to solve the problem. So they freely share without attempting to assess potential market value of any of the pieces of information that they have.
1: Yeah, and I really loved, there was a couple of examples, he gave many examples for all the stuff that he was talking about, but one that I loved was makerspaces and the making movement was a, a centerpiece example of Um, instances where people are using a shared space and they're using shared equipment to just be creative and to dialogue with each other and to give each other feedback but this is not a new phenomenon there was several historical examples that got given uh, back from even the 1680s the republic of letters where there's just a community of people writing letters and dialoguing on topics of interest and giving each other feedback on those topics so this is not a new phenomenon This is something that has become more effective and more cheap as communication technology has matured. But it's been going on for a long time.
0: It's probably always been this way. We're just now getting around to describing it.
1: I heard in this description of groups of enthusiasts, groups of... uh, consumers or participants dialoguing and freely sharing as they use what they're taking, that really describes a lot of teacher communities, that describes the departments that I sit in, that describes the professional organizations I participate in, that describes the online communities, that I that I'm a member of. So in all these situations teachers use the materials and share back the materials they create. Uh, in a lot of instances is a really common structure in education in the education spaces that I that I participate in.
0: Uh, I agree. I love as we said earlier going around the building and having conversations about what you're doing in the classroom and what I'm doing in the classroom and how one might approach this problem or that problem or this issue or that issue and then Taking that back with me and finding new solutions uh, for things that I've been dealing with for some time, I enjoy it significantly. Mm-hmm. One of the things that uh, that brought back some fond memories and.
1: This is a little weird that's a fond memory because I'm weird. but it brought back some fond memories as the characteristic of feedback was really underscored a couple of times in this paper that these communities are giving dispassionate uh, relatively objective or unemotionally informed um, comments on the ideas being shared because they're only loosely affiliated with one another. And so it made me think of some instances where I walk you know I walk through your back door, into your classroom, I, hey, I'm thinking about doing this thing in my class, uh, it seems like an interesting idea, I'm going to try this, what do you think? And you're like, ah, that sounds dumb, I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't want to do that. And I'm like, oh, okay, uh, maybe I need to rethink that. And that's, that's really useful feedback, because I don't want to do something that's uninteresting. And so uh, being able to have that candid dialogue is a really important
0: component of these communities uh, that's really valuable when you find it enthusiast was a word that was sprinkled in the paper and i found that was a really effective term for these participants in these groups because the their enthusiasm is for solving the problem at whatever cost to themselves like is there's the gain for themselves is solving the problem it's not i want to impress my coworker with this idea or this lesson it's I'm trying to solve a problem in my classroom. What do you think of that? I don't think it's going to solve your problem. Okay, well, then I need to rethink it. Mm -hmm. And that's the exchange. The value was, as a solution, is this valid? Let's talk about that. It's a place where uh, people who are critically concerned with improvement are freely, and that comes up over and over again. The term free comes up over and over again in this innovation common space, about freely exchanging and critiquing these ideas to get to something interesting again
1: there's a lot there are many instances where where the author dr potts compared the innovation commons to all the other more familiar market entities firms and, and uh, entrepreneurs and governments the other possible managing organizations and it's not a given that the animation commons is better than the other constructs all the time. That's not, that's not the case. There's a very clear, specific set of criteria when it can be an effective management tool. And so it made me think of an interaction that I had in my professional organization where I'm working with all of these teachers and we're working on ideas and the joy of the interaction and working the problem is why we're, why we're doing this. But the distributed, uncertain value of the information is only true for so long. So if story, the, the NGSS storylines is one example, I think, of, some, of that, the transition moment from the innovation commons to the time to use some other structure where I'm working with some, some colleagues. They have these great ideas. This story They bring this storyline to my attention that, hey, this is a really great way to do this. I think this is a really great way to do this. I wanna work on this with you. And once we understand the value of the idea, And once that information has become sufficiently distributed that a a number of people have it within this commons, I think we start to violate enough of those assumptions that if I was to continue to rely on those same people for all of my instruction related to storylines... I, it would be my folly, it would, that would be a mistake. Once I start to lose some of those assumptions, I need to go to the right places to get the richer curricular materials related to storylines from the firms, from the groups of people like the NGSX Storylines folks who are working on creating valuable products related to that idea. And so while the commons is a great way to identify effective, innovative, ideas
0: for curriculum
1: development, it shouldn't be the only place that you ever get your curriculum.
0: Uh, I don't think we disagree at all. I think what you, I mean, what you said was basically outlined directly there that, The enthusiasts may perceive that they are working on some kind of problem. How do I get my kids to understand science phenomenon within the new context of the NGSS? That may be their problem. But the economic problem they're solving is where do we find value? And once they have solved the problem of where do we find value, either they become entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs find the value and then turn it into something else. If something of value exists, you don't need to create a solution. Mm-hmm. So reinventing the wheel is rarely valuable, unless you are in a physics class and they need to understand ideas about wheels, um, in which case it's awesome. But if if I'm trying to find a solution for, for my classroom and one exists, I don't need to be heavily involved in the innovation commons to create a solution. I can look at the solutions that have been tested, reviewed, researched, published, and are certified. I shouldn't waste my time. The Commons is the way
1: I'm participating in my Twitter chat to find those new good innovation ideas. Some of them are not gonna be great and some of them are gonna be awesome. And when I see the ones that I think might be awesome, I need to go investigate those more deeply. And Twitter alone is not sufficient. The Commons alone is, is only one piece of this of this curve of innovation. And so if we say that Twitter is sufficient, For my professional development we are neglecting the other three phases of innovation as described in this paper
0: Uh, i agree and i have sort of a philosophical approach to justify that position this quote was shared with me on my very first day of my teacher education program i've probably said it on this podcast before don't limit a child to your own learning for he was born in another time if we get excited about hey this group this ngss storyline group or whatever made this thing it was really great i'm going to do everything that i have from them what happens is that you get locked in to doing these same things and you are not improving we can't just become comfortable well clearly what we what what we experienced 20 years ago is probably not appropriate for the students today, but what I found today may not be appropriate for the students that I have five years from now. So I need to continue to look at one, what has been verified as valuable, uh, you know, research supported practices, and also continue to find uh, new approaches to improve. I'm in the middle of writing something right now. One of the statements that I make, and I hope that I haven't stolen this from someone else, it just seems, well, now I'm just being proud. But it seems really good, I'm pretty proud of it. But it's, teaching is too important a profession. The first year that you don't get better should be your last year teaching. And so if, hey, I got all of this great stuff, I can just do it again every year and I don't have to keep improving, You have degraded the professionalism of teaching if you get comfortable in that space. So I agree with you. Find things that are valuable. Be exciting to be a part of the transition between forming something that works and it becoming codified value, but then keep looking for new value.
1: I think that's the flip side of this discussion is... The alternative is also inappropriate. So if I've got this textbook and they are the adopted textbook, and this is what the other folks in my department use, and so whenever they put out a new edition, I'm going to look at their new materials to tell me what new innovations I can put into my classroom. I think that that's also doing it wrong because they have formalized on a particular technology and they are not as well equipped to innovate because of the nature of market forces like they are just not designed to do that and so you've got to be plugged into some of these other um, common spaces to find the new disruptive the new the new cutting edge ideas that can change and shape and improve your classroom and then once you find those materials you need to go you can go looking for the formalized ways that you can implement those materials so i think the opposite is also true if you are never in those common spaces. You're missing out on all the innovation that begins in the first place. So it's this fluid movement between the two that represents the most effective uh, method of growth as an instructor. I have an example of this from my very early career. When I was actually still a pre-service teacher, I was I was um, doing some work in a, in a school out in the field and a teacher with whom I was working, Bruce Wellman, thank you, this is a shout out for you, he made me aware of the Pogel methodology. It was brand new. I'd never heard of this before in my life. It shattered my paradigm in some important ways. And I was like, this is really great. This is something I think I can use. And then I stopped learning from Bruce Wellman about that topic. He taught me some really great things and he brought this idea to my attention. And there's a Pogo organization, and there's a lot of people who spend time working on this, and so then I can shift my attention to the people who spend time doing this as entrepreneurs and as leaders in that field to then get my additional curricular materials and to develop my ability to create my own materials, and so it's that movement between the common space and then moving to the entrepreneurs who might take that on. And Bruce Wellman could have been one of those people. He could have said, "I want to make, the, I want to be an entrepreneur in this space. So I'm going to follow this curve." Uh, he didn't choose to do that, and so then I'm going to shift my attention to the people who did make that choice, as I go ahead and implement this in my classroom.
0: I don't know how relevant they are to our teaching discussion. Maybe maybe you can uh, help me find bridge the gap here. But there was there's some components of this that I thought were, were interesting. One that um, cultures that cooperate to compete are more likely to outdevelop cultures. That do not embrace cooperation, and that is uh, goes along with another statement in the pa- in the paper that selfish individual actors will outcompete on an individual level, but groups of altruists will outcompete groups of individual actors, if certain parameters are true.
1: Uh, if the variation in cooperation is between groups is greater. Than the what was it selective pressure? Yeah, within groups. Yes, greater than the selective pressure within groups. Um, and that was really satisfying to me as a biologist because we're talking about evolutionary yeah. biology ideas. Like, oh, this is this is actually kind of in my field. I, yeah, I, I yeah, exactly, it. exactly. Uh, and that sort of gave an asterisk to me to the cheaters win that I kind of dryly quote sometimes right. when I'm unhappy.
0: I, I thought the exact same thing. I was like. Cheaters went under these conditions. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: So it was a nice formalization, uh, and I think that's something that could actually inform uh, administrators and high-level policymakers who have the opportunity to create the policies that would then incentivize or de-incentivize creativity, freeloading, and the the competition, the nature of competition between groups. So if we can incentivize cooperation and we can reduce the costs of having freeloaders then you can promote this culture of altruistic cooperation and then these nascent uh, innovation common spaces within your buildings i think that says something about the dynamics of what's at play beneath people who are making policy uh, and self-sorting was a good way to avoid that wasn't a, was a note in that in that paragraph so if you allow the operators to be able to choose for themselves and a big piece of this innovation innovation commons is that they can impose some rules and structures and norms to reduce the cost of freeloaders and the cost of people who are non, not uh, observing the norms. So if people are allowed to self-sort so that they can then execute these regulatory activities, then you have higher variation in cooperation between groups because people will form groups with other cooperators and they will exclude non-cooperators. So I think that also says something about how we allow grouping to happen within the structures over which we have control. Or for how PLCs, for instance,
0: are organized. Uh, PLCs is a good example, I think, for that. Yes. If, if teachers are allowed to self-select their PLC associations, they are likely to self-select PLC association. Creative teachers will likely self-select Productive associations with other creative teachers, mm-hmm.
1: and so then you've got high variation in cooperation between PLCs. And then, what do you, I, what do you do with, with that once that's happened? I mean, you can work with the groups with the groups who are
0: less cooperative, I suppose. Uh, it, I, I, it, I guess it comes down to what do you want to get? What do you want your teachers to get out of their PLCs? You have to answer that question first has to do with that paper I'm writing, and this may inform yeah. the paper that I'm writing. I may have more sections. I hadn't to... thought about PLC, but... I may have more things to add yeah. to that paper that I'm yeah. writing based on this research. Yeah, from an
1: economics perspective, the then less effective PLCs would just fail and uh, close, but that's not...
0: We can't do that. Right. I don't want to talk about that. Uh, right, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, in, this is interesting. Yeah. I didn't think about it till just now either.
1: That's a com- that's a compelling argument for self-select PLCs. Yeah. That's
0: the right organizational unit. It's the, well, it depends on what you want your teachers to get out of their PLCs. It's the the compelling answer for my vision of what the value of a PLC is. I actually have enjoyed using them as places where I discuss my problems and the problems of other teachers and we freely exchange Mm. ideas about how we can solve that problems and then go to our classrooms and improve our practice. Tremendously like what is described here is how I have been enjoying them.
2: This is better with all of you.
1: So for the peer review, we have Yuki Tirada, who is Edutopia's research ed- editor. He has a background in education research and looks at how all of the Edutopia content aligns with the research base. So, Thel- welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me here. Uh, and you recently published kind of a roundup of the 2018 education research highlights, which I really loved. First off, because it made me feel really good that we talked about a lot of the same stuff, so we're clearly <laughs> reading a lot of the same literature.
0: You said in that introduction uh, that you have a background in education research. So even before going to edu- Edutopia, you have experience. Uh, Can I? I'm curious. Can you tell me more about that?
2: Oh yeah, sure. So um, back in the late 90s, <laughs> I was um, really into educational technology. I was working on digital libraries. And um, back then, <laughs> back then um, we used the term Smeet, which is really STEM, just in a different arrangement of letters. So I worked on ORGs. I worked on the National Engineering Digital Library. This is a um so I went to Berkeley, UC Berkeley and I was working on the digital libraries that we made, um, which uh, produced courseware for our uh, college students. Um, so back then a professor in like, let's say engineering would create uh, courseware, which is kind of like these little applications. For example, let's say you're an engineering professor and you want to help your students learn how to build bridges. Um, so, you know, you have your you have a classroom where you do everything, you do lots of hands-on stuff. We also might create a, a program that helps students learn how to build bridges. Um, so, you know. You, get, you have all the different components, all the different materials, uh, they have to plug in all the different calculations. Um, they're kind of like these little programs that you can incorporate into your course um, to give your students kind of a more broader sense, a more broader understanding of how to do things like in engineering and science, biology. Um, so started off with um, digital libraries. I also did a lot of uh, curriculum integration work um, back at Berkeley, where we'd look at the undergraduate courses that are usually single subjects, so like um, uh, calculus physics, biology, and then the upper division courses tended to integrate all those different uh, everything that students learned in those separate um, courses so there 's this kind of this uh, disconnect that can happen where a student learns kind of like oh here i 'm learning uh, biology i 'm learning physics i 'm learning calculus um, but then when they get to these upper division courses, now they have to like not think about it think about those uh, subjects in kind of these discrete boxes they also have to start incorporating everything they're learning um also was at a children's science um uh, learning center uh the lawrence hall of science where we looked at the connections connections between uh informal science learning and formal science learning so one of the cool projects that i worked on is i actually followed kids around in their classrooms at school and then I, i went to their homes and looked at kind of like what kind of environment are they learning in at home like what kind of space do they have for homework what kind of attitudes do their parents and uh, family members have towards what they're learning and trying to look at the uh, connection between them um, and how, how can we support students who are not only learning um, in, in schools, but how can we support them, support what they're learning in at home.
1: Full disclosure: I have published a couple of articles on Edutopia, so that pitch process, I know the I know the other side. I know the, I know the author side of that. I'm actually most interested not in talking about any of the specific edu- uh, research instances, um, but the the more general approach to how you infuse research into the like very utilitarian focus that I interpret is present in the education ed- in the Edutopia platform. You know, in the pitches that I submit, they're always like, "What? Is, how does this matter to classroom teachers? Like, how can they implement this today? How do you?" approach that perspective of we need to be using the research, but our
2: readers really need to know how to make use of this right now. I always want to answer a few kind of like very basic questions when I write something up for Edutopia, like how is this important? Why should I spend you know a few minutes of my time reading what you've written, um, reading your article? Um, I want to make sure that uh, it's, it's really easy with educational research to get abstract and to think about kind of like uh, these big ideas. But really what it boils down to is, how can this um, inform my practice in the classroom? How can it inform my teaching in the classroom? How can it make me a better teacher, a smarter teacher? Um, and and my goal, really, with, with every article that I write and every article that we publish as Edutopia, is to make sure that uh, you come away with some ta- tactical information, that you come away with some tips so that you can implement things in the classroom immediately. Um, so, for example, like um, I wrote a piece on classroom decorations, and it's very easy to get into the science of it, to get into kind of like uh, the latest latest study, which looks at how classroom decorations can be distracting for students. But what are the takeaways for teachers? And, and the question really is uh, much broader than just like looking at classroom decorations, at, um, looking at how classroom decorations can uh, distract students. But looking at classroom decorations as a whole, looking at the physical design of your classroom, looking at how... Uh, your classroom can be a symbolic way of representing uh, science. So for example, if you have, if your wall is full of, uh, let's say, uh, old white men, um, and all you're talking about are kind of like this historical perspective of science, you might make certain students in your classroom not feel welcome, not feel like they belong in in the field of science. Uh, So you wanna make sure that whatever you do, that you, you really give students a sense of belonging, a sense that they can do science, that they're represented in science. Um, so it's it's a pretty big question. And I always always wanna make sure that no matter what, there there are uh, tips that teachers can uh, take away from what I write. Uh, but that's actually what we're interested in hearing from you about, is you
1: wrote up this uh, 20 edu- 2018 Education Research Highlights piece. There was a that's funny that you mentioned the classroom decoration, because that was actually the topic of our last month's our last month's show where we were talking about how we can promote mindfulness and it was nice because it was nice and concrete and actionable, but there was a spot about halfway through your article where you were looking at some of the the recent it was fairly popular, at least in my perception, of the the meta analysis on growth mindset research and how it's it's a little more subtle and a little more complex than we initially thought, and how some of the interventions weren't having the effects that we thought they were having. And so how do you approach coming out with tactical information when we've got something that's saying, okay, this implementation that we thought was going to be this broadly useful and broadly impactful idea is maybe not as straightforward as we thought it was going to be. And there's still value in here, but it's a little more complex. How do you approach sharing that information so that we don't make teachers feel like, well, crap, I got to throw everything out that I thought I was doing, but also giving them pause to think more about some of the subtleties that maybe we've been overlooking to this point. How do you kind of do that balancing act?
2: Yeah, I mean, we see this over and over, where this big landmark study comes out, and then it, it really changes how people understand something. Uh, but then, as time goes on, there are nuances um, to the study, and, and it's not necessarily that the study was wrong. Um, I mean, there's a lot of value in those studies because they help help point us to uh, to new ideas and new research uh, that we might not have thought about before. Uh, so, with growth mindset, I mean, the idea, um, the idea that there are students with fixed mindsets and there are students with growth mindsets. And that if you help students understand kind of uh, their own mental processes, then you can help them kind of like overcome the barriers that they might be implementing on themselves. So for example, if you have a student that's a straight A student and they do well in every single test um, and you kind of like, um, it's, it's understanding that there is, uh, that identity plays a large role in learning. And if a student is afraid, to fail a test, not necessarily because of kind of the actual grade, but because they don't want to be seen as someone who is not smart. Uh, that plays a large role in how they approach things. They might not be as willing to um, take risks. Uh, like there was a, a study a couple of years ago looking at peer pressure and learning. And when uh, this was in high school. Um, when the high school actually advertised that, the, that they were doing SAT prep courses for free, um, the sign-up rate for those courses was about 50%. But when the high school um, didn't advertise what the, uh, that uh, these sign-up courses uh, were being held, uh, the, the sign-up rate actually went up to 80%. And what was happening was that... Uh, no, <laughs> well, what was happening was that there are students who were afraid that they were getting, giving the perception that they were asking for help. And these tend to be students who didn't do as well. So the students who need the most help are often the ones that are afraid to actually ask for it. Because, um, because for whatever reason, it could be peer peer pressure. It could be their friends. Um, it, this goes. There's a lot. There's 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 an old book, uh, "Learning to Labor," uh, by Paul Willis, um, where he he looked at this is in Europe. He looked at how students uh, kind of what students did was more informed by their peers than what their parents or what their teachers will tell would tell them to do. So there, are t- there if a student had kind of uh, had uh, kind of this image of being like really cool, really friendly with other students, um, they might not necessarily ask for help when they need it. Um, so, so back to the, the recent study, um, if you had these sign-ups that were public and it, uh, like the students who signed up uh, were on a list and that list was actually um, available to other students and like it was pretty obvious that the student was asking for help, a student who doesn't do well, a student who struggles might be much more uh, reluctant to sign up for help.
0: And I, I just wanted to say that um, in your article, you uh, referred to the uh, discipline uh, issues, disparity. Your, the heading in your article, disparities in discipline for black boys. Researchers found that 40% uh, of black boys uh, at a certain age had been suspended or expelled by age nine, and that was highly disparate disparate so there's this uh in addition to an achievement gap there is a suspension gap essentially uh, a discipline gap uh that and 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 the idea that um we as professionals we as individuals perceive behaviors the intent of behaviors we we impose the intent of behaviors with bias so we can see the same exact behaviors and then infer different intentions uh, based on demographics is really important research. Uh, Because we have to acknowledge that that is true. We have to, like you you said, bias is a natural part of existing in humans, but we have to acknowledge that bias before we can navigate it responsibly. And so just having that published in black and white.
2: About um, that study in the research highlights piece, but just in general, it's really important to connect education to kind of larger society as a whole. If we're looking at, let's say, disciplinary bias with uh, students of color, you know, this isn't something that happens just with teachers. This is something that happens across society as a whole. In the criminal justice system, penalties for crimes are distributed disproportionately, where you can have the same crime being committed by two different people and have different actual sentences being given to those two different people, not just not because of the crime they actually committed, but because of all these other factors, uh, because of perceptions of uh, that person as a criminal, uh, perceptions of how his or her background might influence what they've done. Um, so, the idea that in our in in our schools that uh, black and white students are treated differently uh, based off of our perceptions of misbehavior it, it's not limited just to schools it's it's really a, a broad it's it's really a it, it's a big idea and what we're seeing is kind of the extension uh,
0: what was uh what do you think was the most important research that you uh you discussed you shared you published this year what do you think is the m- most important classroom <laughs> shaping research
2: that is a tough question um, because what's important isn't necessarily always what's the most popular Um, because what's important um, to me really fundamentally changes the way a teacher uh, thinks about teaching. Um, It really gives them insight about what they can do in the classroom. So so the most popular pieces tend to be ones that are, uh, they tend to be very broad. So the classroom decorations piece, I mean, Almost every teacher has a classroom. Almost every teacher thinks about decoration, decorations in the classroom. Uh, not just decorations, also looking at like kind of like uh, symbolic representations of people in the field, things like that. Um, almost every teacher thinks about um, ceiling arrangement. And that's important. Um, but for, for me, what's really important is looking at kind of the, the big inequities in education and how we can address that. So for me, uh, some of the most important research has to do with bias. Has to do with if, um, if students aren't doing well on a test, is it because they don't understand the material, or is it because there are all these other things going on that we might not be aware of that are influencing how that student does on the test? Because really, ultimately, we want a fair um, educational system. We want a system where, when we understand what students are doing, uh, that we get a uh, we get a good picture of what they know and it's not um influenced by all these other factors. Uh so for example, um looking at achievement gaps I think is really important and getting a bigger understanding of why achievement gaps exist. Um, and not just uh not just looking at like the black white achievement gap uh, but looking at also like why are uh why are girls and students of color underrepresented in STEM fields. Um how can we better uh create an educational system that's accommodating to like students with disabilities, students with like learning disabilities and physical disabilities, how can you make it so that students feel welcome in the classroom? Um, so it's, it's, it's really much broader than just looking at kind of like uh, these disparities in education. It's really about uh, making sure that our edu- educational system addresses the needs of every student. Um, so to me, uh, that's really kind of what it boils down to is just making sure that we have the best educational system. We have the best schools as possible.
1: I appreciate you making the distinction between what is popular and what is important. That makes me feel really good. (laughs) Um, the, and highlighting the racial disparities, we talked about this uh, pretty deeply in episode 021, uh, with the TNPT, uh, research. Um, and there's a, There's a struggle that I have, and I'd be curious to know what your approach is to it about trying to invite people to participate in these uncomfortable discussions. They're hard discussions about how do we deal with uh, the current systemic inequities in education, uh, STEM education in particular, and the STEM professions that they lead to? And how do we deal with different interventions we're trying to have or different uh, responsibilities that there may be for the current inequities that exist? And those are difficult conversations. Those are really difficult um, emotional for people to engage, especially people of privilege. I'm one of them uh, to acknowledge this is my privilege and this is the responsibility that I have to, to engage with that, to talk about that. That's tough to do. So uh, how do you navigate that problem of inviting people to participate, but also making sure that there's uh, enough people involved in the conversation that it actually matters, right? I don't want to be shouting into the void either. An article with zero readers is not a particularly valuable read article either. So how do you kind of navigate those, those two um, competing interests maybe?
2: So, so every time I write a piece and with every piece that we publish on Edtopia, I try really hard to take myself take myself out of the shoes of a researcher and into into the shoes of a, a teacher a, a classroom teacher thinking about uh, what are what's the tactical tactical information I can provide what will be useful in the classroom um, so really when I write something and I look at comments, the comments that I really engage with most are questions uh, specifically about the content. Um, So, for example, I just I wrote a piece on multiple choice quizzes, kind of giving some some tips on how to create um, effective multiple quizzes because research shows that uh, quizzes aren't just uh, tools for assessment. They can also be tools for learning. Um, So when you have a quiz, you're not just kind of gauging uh, how students understand a topic, but you're also in a way you're creating the conditions for them to be able to study for the test. And you're also creating an actual learning artifact for the students to engage with. Um, so one of the takeaways for that piece was, okay, don't um, don't have too many kind of wrong answers on a multiple choice question because if a student picks a wrong answer, then uh, they're more likely to actually remember the wrong answer and it'll stick in their head. Um, so one of the one of the questions that came up was. Um, what's the right balance between essay questions and multiple choice questions? Because when you have multiple choice questions, uh, you know, you get kind of a more superficial kind of sense of what students understand. But with an essay question, you can really dig in into what students uh, know. Um, and um, my response um, was that uh, there isn't really an ideal mix, um, but the person was on the right track, um, meaning that, with, with any form of assessment it's important to not look at um, a single form of a single way of doing things that you want really a broad a really rich mix of assessment forms you want you want essay questions you want multiple choice questions you want students talking up in front of a classroom in front of other students presenting ideas presenting uh, a topic because if you stick to one way of assessing uh, students then um, you, you can create this um this environment, or if a student is is just for whatever reason bad at a particular uh way of uh, expressing themselves, then you can disproportionately um be harming that student. Uh, so if a student, let's say, uh, isn't good at speaking in public, then you want you don't want your classroom to just focus on. Uh, kind of performative assessment. You don't want your classroom to just focus on that student getting up in front of other kids. You want that to be a component because it's good to kind of uh, expose students to things that they're not good at uh, to help them kind of overcome uh, those challenges. But you want to make sure that you're giving students multiple ways to express what they know.
1: Make better mistakes. How was the beer? Well, I gotta tell you, I was a little intimidated early on, but I became enthusiastic quickly. Drinks like silk. It sure does, and it's great. It comes across a little bit smoother, which is consistent with my experience comparing Canadian whiskeys to American whiskeys.
0: Sure. Uh, and I, it's definitely not a stout. This is a brown ale.
1: Yeah, it is. It has that lighter character. It sure, absolutely.
0: Does. So I think that what happens is when you get that brown ale, which is lighter than a stout, and then you get this Canadian whiskey, which is smoother than American whiskeys, you get something that just says, "Put me down your throat." Yeah, but uh, it comes across. I am more intoxicated
1: than I am in many of our episodes because it is heavy. It is heavy as the others. It sure is.
0: Thirteen point nine percent
1: yeah we're drinking wine is what we're doing
0: um so yeah
1: but it's it's great it's It's really good it's really good
0: it sure is uh i can understand why it's a limited release (laughs) because it's really good yeah they want me to pay more for it the next time it comes out next year so well
1: done boulevard yep tell you what cheers yeah Thanks for listening in. Remember that we want your perspective. So join us on twopintplc.com. You can find all of our references and you can leave any comments you may have so that we can discuss them on a future peer review. Remember that we want you to participate because this is better together. But until that happens, next time, discuss research and struggle well.